This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and today I'm joined by Lloyd Godman on the outskirts of Melbourne in Australia. Welcome, Lloyd. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been a long time since we caught up and a pleasure to catch up with you again. Brings back some great memories of many conversations we've had in the past. It does indeed. I said on the outskirts of Melbourne. Is that is that how you describe it? It's, it's St Andrews? Is we, that... Yes, we're about 40 kilometres out of Melbourne. So we're uh, on a bush block of about 13 acres and most of the people around us are on similar sized properties. There's a little township uh, and we're quite, we're quite lucky to, um, to, to have a lot of nature around us, I suppose. So how are things going in your bubble? Well, to tell you the truth, it's not hugely different. Um, apart from not being able to get uh, a good cappuccino down at the um, the local bakery and sit down and have a chat with people, there's not much difference. We spend a lot of time at home anyway. We have an art studio. Uh, my partner, uh, Tess, her late husband was a, a well-known Australian artist called George Balderson, who died about 40 years ago and the studio that he built Tess uh, opened about 2000 and we've artists come and stay and work there we have still been able to have artists come and stay we've had to manage that Uh, so we only really have one artist at a time and then there's a gap between artists and, and you know everything's kind of cleaned down and so on like that we have accommodation where artists can stay, so um, we're getting less artists coming and working, but there still are creative people coming and working in the studio. So that is happening to a certain degree. Um, Tess and myself, uh, I'm 68, Tess is in her 70s. Uh, we have seen ourselves as maybe in the danger zone, although we're relatively fit. So we don't have a lot of contact with the studio that's managed by Sylvie. And then the property itself, uh, we have a large orchard, which is a great benefit. Uh, It's a sequencing orchard, so there's about 160 varieties of fruit. So usually there's something to eat in in the orchard, and then we have a big vegetable garden. And then I grow loads and loads of bromeliads and particularly tillandsias, which are ear plants. On uh, the site where we live, we have a cottage. And Tess's son with his wife and two children, one who's 
two, nearly three, and the other one who's five, uh, they live there with us. So they've been going out and getting supplies for us and helping in that way. And just working in the garden and doing jobs like that is it's what we normally do anyway. So we, <laughs> things haven't changed a huge amount. The, the only really big thing that did happen is um, uh, one of my neighbours offered me these enormous windows. Uh, he's a builder joiner and he, di he didn't need them. So we've been planning this for ages and I got the earthwork done to level a site to build, extend the greenhouse uh, on the Saturday and on the Monday the lockdown conditions came in. So I ordered the materials, they were delivered and uh, I've just been working flat out on that. Um, it's about nine metres by four metres wide and uh, it, it's looking fabulous. Let's take the first of your tracks. Let's take the Rolling Stones, Living in a Ghost Town.
took some photographs of the Stones in 1970s, and I photographed a lot of bands like Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, Joe Cocker, and so on. And one of the things that I did that nobody was really doing was in the 70s was I was shooting colour. So a lot of the images are quite rare that they their colour images when most people were just shooting black and white. I, I worked out a technique of shooting colour in dark conditions. At the time, uh, the fastest film you could buy was 160 ISO, uh, the fastest colour film. The My latest phone has... Uh, which is a Huawei, uh, uh, has um, an ISO, top ISO setting of 400,000 ISO. <laughs> so you just walk out in the dark and take pictures. Uh, so life has changed a bit in terms of cameras. But what it meant was I was sitting on an archive of photographs. Um, they were published in a book called Stone's Gear, which was... Uh, about all the instruments that the Rolling Stones played and what they want, what they're interested in. My contribution to the project is their photographs that I took. But as I say, it's under wraps. Uh, at the same time, uh, the Stones released the single, uh, Ghost in a Ghost Town, and I think it was released on the 23rd of March. And there's now over 5 million views. So it's pretty pertinent to what's happening. And the visuals are absolutely spectacular. I've been enjoying the revisiting that you've been doing of some of your old projects. And, and putting them together in books and, and, and documenting some of those old projects of yours. That's been a, a pretty massive job it started uh with a uh, an exhibition that i did at deakin university did a survey show and we did uh we we showed work from nine projects and there were nine books that sat alongside the work so we ha we would have like one or two works from the series and then a book of maybe two th up to 250 pages that sat alongside it. So what I've been doing is going back, documenting all of the projects, and they're all um, interlinked now. Uh, you can actually buy the complete set for 30 bucks, which is pretty cheap. Is, um, uh, there's about 32 projects, and they're all hyperlinked. There's sound files in there. I haven't dropped video into um into them because the the file sizes just blow out too too much but i put links to youtube videos but it's uh um yeah but people who have bought them just you know there's so much information there and it's such a brilliant way as an artist to um communicate about your work one of the things that's happened from it is some of the art galleries around uh, where I live have got copies of this in their collection. So if they're um, researching something for an exhibition, they can just go directly to the file and there it is. So they're all published as interactive PDFs and the design is done in InDesign, Adobe InDesign. Takes so ages. Yeah, <laughs> yes. You, you started out as a photographer. <laughs> 
Do you still describe yourself as a photographer? Probably only describes a bit um, of what you do. Well, look, it's photography. The word for photography actually means drawing with light. And by implication, that means also drawing with shadows, because if you've only got light, you've only got white. So somehow you have to create a modulation. Um, you, you're pretty aware of the work that I did back in 96 when I, I moved to exploring growing images into the leaves of plants by masking off parts of the plants and exploring the idea that plants are actually a form of photography. They're using light to grow. That, that expanded into um, interactive installations of plants in galleries where people would walk in, move around, and lights would turn on, and shadow patterns of plants would happen, and so on. Um, and from that, I can see the idea also that the planet is actually the largest photosensitive emulsion we know of. All of the uh, the foliage on the planet, algae and as well, and stuff like that, is responding to light going past the planet. We can look at sequences from NASA and actually see uh, the colours changing uh, from season to season when there's rain, when there's a drought and so on. But unfortunately, we can also see uh, sequences of the impacts of people on the planet, uh, deforestation, bushfires, um, all of the droughts, all of those sorts of things. We, we can actually see those as well. So. I looked at the idea that the planet is a living photograph. It's a kind of three-dimensional photograph. You, you have to discard the concept of the camera and focus on light to understand this. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favorite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mahi aroha nui, ke koutou kotahoho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved bubbles. And I'm so grateful for this time with you. Thank you all for being born. Thank you for bringing your unique magic into this world. Thank you to all of the lives that have come before your life, making your life possible. And thank you to all lives that you have interacted with, either consciously or unconsciously so far making you who you are so I thought that today we could really enjoy delving and diving into the process of transition because we find ourselves in a time of transition and really each moment is a process of transition from inhale to exhale from absorption of oxygen to exhalation of carbon dioxide from observing the world around us to taking those observations within and reinterpreting them through our many layers of perceptive power drawing meaning from them and slotting them into a pre-existing framework that we have been building since before our birth so transition is really something we're very good at as a species of animal, the product of literally billions of years of life on Earth. 
And we would not be here if it were not for all the transitions that have gone before us. So in this time of quite rapid transition, I hope that you have noted ways in which you have excelled in moving from one state of being, one way of doing things, one way of perceiving your daily life, one way of perceiving yourself, to so many new ways of doing and being and feeling and appreciating and loving. And I hope that there's been lots of opportunities for you to take a wee step back and enjoy this learning and this exciting adventure that we've been on together. So as we transition now and we're extending our bubbles, we're able to venture further afield. We're noticing that more of our own species are moving in to the spaces which previously were being filled by other species because our species were confined to their beloved bubbles. I think that we're seeing that shift, we're seeing that transition from spaces that we were able to perceive anew as wilder spaces and we were witnessing that return to the real world that we evolved in that we are evolving in and we're seeing that re-emergence of that constructed universe the human world and I hope that in this time because we have had this wonderful opportunity to take a wee step back and enjoy seeing that construct of the human world having to pause, having to do things differently. I hope that you're able to really excel at this transition into doing things in a way that works better for you. I'd really wish that for you all. I think it's wonderful that we've had this time of seeing what we can do working from home, working remotely, working differently, communicating with one another differently, drawing upon skills that we might not have known that we had, like me making all of these online resources and looking after beautiful hay hay and growing lots of veggies. And I hope that by walking around your neighbourhoods and spending more time in your garden, your creative inspiration is being drawn from that real world that gives us life, that living world. And I have found that my neighbourhood now has just come to life for me in a way that it never had before. I love it so much more now because I've had the time and the space to fall in love with it. And Every day when I've walked around my little jaunt in the neighbourhood, I've made so many new friends with all the trees and the flowers and the fungi and the magnolias and the abandoned deck chairs, all these characters that I had never met before, now I know and love. So I hope that this time of transition for you really affords you the opportunity to feel proud of all the new skills that you've gained and as we explore level three together perhaps even level two together very soon we will enjoy 
using these new skills in ways that work best for us and drawing our creative inspiration and our sense of self from the real world that surrounds us. And I look forward to talking to you next time. Kakite. So what actually happened from there was uh, there was a great initiative to, there's been a great initiative to um, introduce plants into contemporary architecture. But unfortunately, a lot of the systems they've devised aren't actually as sustainable as the, uh, the makers promote. So what we've been doing is working with Talansias, which are air plants, which absorb all their nutrients in water through little cells on the leaf called trichomes. And we've been putting them on buildings all over Melbourne where we can get on to build on where we get permission. We we only do sanctioned work. We don't it's not like guerrilla greening warfare kind of stuff. Um, so the first major installation we did was on top of Eureka Tower. And it turned out that was the tallest building in the world with plants on. So they're at level 92. They've been there six years. They have never, ever had maintenance. Now, a lot of vertical gardens during that time would have had at least 36 visits, mainly replacing dead plants. So those plants have been up there. Um, they've been through drought, rain, hail, wind. It's extreme. It's an extreme climate up there but they haven't died and they they grew to such a point that last year we actually had to take them out of the security cage we had them in because they have to be secure so they don't blow off the building and we had to put them into a bigger security cage so from eureka tower uh we now have them on federation square we have them on the national gallery of victoria we have them on tarawara art museum uh we have them on australian print workshop um we've got them mounted on the upstands of solar panels so we're exploring the idea how you can actually have a green roof and solar panels at the same time um and the beauty of them is that the, we don't use any plastics at all. It's just metal, stainless steel and aluminium and the plants. There is no watering system. There's no nutrients. Uh, there's none of the sort of problems that you can run into with some of the other, the other garden systems. So it's proving that it works. And we've, uh, when I say we, I work with a, another couple of guys, Stu Jones, who's a structural engineer, helps me a lot. Um, and Jeff Beach has been helping me too. And Grant Harris has, has uh, had an input into the projects. So we've made screens that can sit on the facade of a building made of plants and actually move over a, um, a window. So you can screen the window with plants to let uh, to mitigate heat, and then you can move it to let the sun in. We have it, it where I live on the house. We've got some screens that move over the skylights, and I've been recording the temperatures that they can withstand. They're about two hundred mil off the roof, and they're actually um, the wheel the trolley system that they run on it's uh, their old scooter wheels that i've salvaged from a um, recycle shop and 
we had did some temperature readings when they were um, when the temperature was over 40. The roofing line was reading 84.5 degrees, and the plants. We don't know what the temperature of the plants were, but they survived those temperatures. We did lose some of those plants, but it wasn't actually to heat. We had a 60-year frost, which was about minus six, minus seven, and it killed some of the plants. So it wasn't actually the heat and dryness, it was actually the um, the frost. But we're, we're trying to prosecute the idea that we, you can safely integrate plants into buildings in a fully sustainable way uh, just by selecting the right sort of plants. There's been uh, a kind of fixation with a lot of vertical garden designs to have three, 400 species on a single wall. Uh, and when you look at a, an extreme environment in nature, you don't actually find that. You may find five or six or 10 or something like that. So we, we tend to just work with plants we know that will work. And uh, we've got a, a big commission coming up in, um, on a residence in uh, Melbourne at the moment. And the people have, I rang them the other day and they said, I was a bit worried about what was happening with the lockdown. And they said, no, no, keep planning, keep, <laughs> keep oh, wow. going. Oh, wow, that's cool. So, um, so that's that's pretty good, yeah. We, we've also been so you got part all the of the... Sorry, Sam? Are all the baby ones, are they they're growing in your glass house and things, are they? Or all over oh, in your property? Yeah, that's, I, that's another lifetime. They grow from seeds so slowly. Um, yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're extraordinary plants. Um, I got so fascinated them, I wrote a, a book on them, and uh, it's actually now six books. Uh, six volumes and it's fifteen hundred pages long, uh, as a as a, uh, a PDF, uh, and people buy that from all over the world because it's got information about the plants and how to grow them and all sorts of stuff. Um, but surprisingly, I mean, it's an interesting thing. In Argentina, they grow on the power wires and on the roofs of buildings, and people clean them off because they think they're weeds. Whereas here, they're, they're uh, in Melbourne, they're ideal for what we're actually trying to do to cool cities down, you know. So I suppose it's um, each to their own and it's it's whatever your perspective is, you know. So it's extreme gardening, but it's slow gardening. It is. Uh, yeah, the Age newspaper in Melbourne did an article on it and called me an extreme gardener, yeah. Um, Although there's a friend of mine uh, likes to call me uh, an avant gardener. Uh, one of the things I did that was kind of uh, strange with that was some of the plants are salt tolerant. So I, you might have seen I actually took one for a surf, put it on my helmet and took it out uh, with a GoPro and filmed it. And the plant actually survived being fully submerged in salt water and... Um, about a year later, it actually flowered. So now you're going to have to line up all your plants and take them out for a surf. Uh, well, the, the other thing that's happened in Melbourne, which has been pretty uh, amazing, is they've opened the surf park. 
which is artificially generated waves, and that's very seductive. It's it's a pretty amazing uh, uh, complex, but it's shut at the moment, unfortunately. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist, observing city life in lockdown. Hi there, bubble people. It's Liesel here, coming at you from my bubble to yours, as our bubbles kind of evolve over time. Uh, because, yeah, I guess over this whole period of sort of lockdown situation, uh, and its varying stages, forms and guises, uh, I guess we're sort of evolving into different sort of uh, types of bubble again. So while our f- sort of first, I guess, level four uh, experience, we had um, pretty strict rules around bubble and what that looked like. And uh, I know even talking to a friend overseas that lives in the UK, he was like, uh, you keep talking about this bubble thing, like, what is the bubble? <laughs> I was like, you know, the bubble, like your bubble. He's like, yeah, no, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have bubbles here. <laughs> I said, okay, well, it's a really great concept. It's basically the people that you're living with and they are your immediate um, kind of contact people. I guess they're your only contact people. So, yeah, I mean, there are some exceptions in the mix there, but effectively who you live with. And he was like, oh, that's a great concept, right. That makes it very clear and easy to understand. And I actually think that's been one of the really uh, helpful things about having uh, the levels. Um, I think, for me anyway, I like to know what's coming next. And so having a, a system that tells us there are levels to it, it automatically gives us kind of um, a way of knowing that there's going to be something else. Even if we don't quite know when it is, uh, I think just knowing that there will be something else coming is um, is hopeful. And I think that's one of the things I've really appreciated about um, the way our government has responded to this crisis is um, that they've been very hopeful in the way that they've delivered information. They've been realistic and they've been pretty transparent, I think, um, as much as a government can be transparent. But I think they have set it up in such a way that they haven't tried to uh, kind of, I guess, keep people fearful or uncertain or questioning, but actually um, have tried to reassure us by saying, hey, there's there's a system, there's a plan, there's something in place. And I, I mean, we will look back on this time and I'm sure that we will all have different ways that we would have done it. Um, Critiques of what's happened, um, criticisms of various points in the operation, but I think overall for a a sort of situation that probably is not one that you can really prepare for uh, exactly, especially if you haven't had the experience of going through this before, then uh, I think the system that New Zealand has put in place with the bubbles and the levels has been really helpful and uh, and the nice thing about bubbles is that they um, they seem to expand as levels uh, go on so as we start to move into um, the possibility of level two and what that looks like I guess we um, we can also start to imagine a world with slightly bigger bubbles but I think it's a really lovely concept because 
a bubble is a beautiful temporary thing and it's got lots of um, momentary goodness that comes with it and then uh, if you don't treat it kindly or um, let it sort of evolve by itself it um, it pops so I think it's a nice image that we've sort of got there the, the lovely rainbow bubbles that um, float out into the world there when we as kids not always as kids but I used to love blowing bubbles as a kid but I also uh, might have done a little bubble blowing as an adult as well but there's nothing wrong with that it's good to be playful isn't it but yeah I think um, I'm looking forward to what the next level might bring for us and I guess for me um, being in a bubble by myself as some of you out there will be as well um, it will be exciting to see how there might be a little bit more human interaction and a few more bubbles might expand in the process of uh, moving into this next stage so I hope you're all being healthy and staying safe and continue to do what you're doing. I think we still have to go easy, but um, yeah, it's exciting. It's hopeful and uh, I hope you have a lovely afternoon. Take care. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. I'm Samuel Mann talking with Lloyd Godman, who's an ecological artist in the bush near Melbourne. In the past, you've used things that are happening around you as inspirations for your work I'm thinking of the I don't know what you called it but the the bushfire regeneration project and you tried to be King Midas stopping the um, the filling of the Clyde Dam I'm sure that's not what you're doing but is the COVID situation prompting any thoughts not not really I think I think for me the interesting thing with the COVID thing is it totally underlines in bold why we have to take notice to scientists i mean these are the people who actually know what the hell is going on and to ignore them is just complete stupidity um you know on the the virus thing scientists have been saying this would happen and people you know you don't want to pay the insurance policy basically um, it's going to cost too much, but the cost of not paying the insurance policy and setting up systems that deal with this uh, is going to far exceed anything that you might have spent on on preparation. It's the same with um, with the climate change thing. Um, it's a really interesting period of time we live in. I can't remember who it was, but there was an article I read um, a few weeks back um saying that we we probably won't, won't recognize things when we do go back to normal it won't be normal and two of the reasons they were putting forward for that was that a lot of the main te technological advances that are t taking place that are going to change society are still happening because the people working on those can work from home Two examples that he gave was uh, 3D printing has the potential to overrun factory production, uh, where you can actually 3D print things, uh, unique objects um, that have a similar framework. Uh, and the other one, of course, is AI, particularly in terms of uh, transport systems and, and things like that. So one of the 
ideas that's been promoted here in Australia is let's get back to coal, as they as they always do. That you know, if we get the coal mines working, but um, a lot of the coal mines are moving to automated trucks. Um, in actual fact, the renewables then uh, um, drive will will actually produce far more dry, uh, jobs than than a lot of the mining industries. Uh, because they are labour-intensive industries. Um, so there's a lot more potential for people to get employment there. It's going to be an interesting transition. Um, in terms of, of art, um, I now call myself an ecological artist uh, because I study ecology and, and use that as in art projects. Um, and I took some pretty some length to look at what was really happening with the production of art in the world. And some of the figures absolutely, and this is just purely based on population, completely blew me away. There's actually more artists living and working today than all the artists who have ever died. That's just based on population. So there are more artworks being made today than ever. You know, we, we, and galleries can't store the stuff. Uh, they're running out of storage space. Um, and what's happening with the pandemic is probably going to uh, increase a lot of pressure on some of those things. Um, so one of the artists that was very influential on me was a German artist called Joseph Boys, who did a, uh, a project at documenter in Germany called, um, I think it was 1982, called uh, 7,000 Oaks, where they, as an artwork, they planted 7,000 Oaks through the streets of Aachen to replace the greening of the city um, after the Second World War, because they, they hadn't really got on to planting trees, even, uh, uh, even though it was in the 1980s. What Boise's work really emphasised for me was the idea of making artwork which is active in the environment. So the idea with a lot of art in the, historically has been the idea that you go, you go to nature and you somehow represent it as a painting or a, a video piece or um, a drawing or a print or whatever. Uh, but the thing that I feel we need to do as artists is really start exploring how we work with the real. I'm not talking about realism, painting something so it looks real. I'm talking about working with the object itself, the way that Joseph Boys did in greening the cities. Incidentally, Boys went on um, to actually co-found the Greens after he after he did that project in Germany. So uh, he was he was a pretty um, Pretty amazing guy uh, with some of the work that he was doing. I mean, it's not only Joseph Boys. There have been other artists that have worked with plants as well. Um, but I think there's, there's going to be a huge potential for artists to, to explore those things. Um, it, it, it's a combination of science and art because you actually have to know what the hell you're doing with the plants. Uh, unfortunately, I've seen a number of projects where artists have worked with plants, but they don't really fully understand the plants. And over a period of time, the, the project tends to fall over. I wonder if the permaculture movement is coming at that from the 
coming to the same sort of place but from a different direction it's a much more holistic way of thinking about what you're doing and the 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 aesthetic of it not in terms of it being pretty but in terms of the you know working with the objects and in, in a holistic way I, I look i think there are a lot of intersections there for sure mm. um oh. One of the things that the World Wildlife Fund put out um, uh, a while back was a, a count on the world's topsoil and basically saying that in 200 years we've lost about half the world's topsoil through bad farming practices. Permaculture, of course, the whole idea of it is to put back, um, to actually replenish as, as you're taking from it. Um, that's what we've done here, um, the land that we're, we're on here was gold mined and there really wasn't much soil at all. It was pretty, pretty barren. And when I started planting the orchard, uh, we just went through this terrible drought. So what we've done is got as much organic compost matter as we can and we put that around the trees and now it's it's... I've made the mistake every gardener makes. You put the damn trees too close together. It's a jungle. <laughs> but, you... but what it does is it, it means, you know, we have the sequencing orchard, so there's always something to eat. There's, there's, there's fajoas in the orchard. There's four types of mandarins that fruit at different times coming on. There's oranges. There's a little blackberry called a Luma apicolata. Um, there's guavas coming on, um, and then we'll get into spring, and we'll get the berry fruits and apricots and peaches and plums. And yeah, there's there's all. And when we started the dam below the orchard. Um, I've got a tank at the top, so what we do is pump up to the tank and gravity feed the orchard. Um, so that dam was a clay colour. It was yellow. Because we put so much organic matter into it, the dam now is black. Because all those nutrients are running into the dam and then we pump them back up and filter them back, um, drip feed back into the trees. And the growth is just extraordinary. You know, it's and you you go down there on a fourteen degree day, and it's ten degrees cooler. You know, it was just an open valley before with with a few um, uh, scru scrubby trees, blackberry, and and not much else, and and it's completely changed. But of all of the societal changes you've seen in the last couple of months, what do you think is going to stick, and what do you hope will stick? Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, look, there's so much, it, you know, it's the old golden rule. He, those with the gold make the rules. But let's hope that there can be enough, uh, we can overcome the inertia and actually make some meaningful changes. Uh, I personally think that it would be fantastic to move towards a, a society where um, uh, there's a guaranteed uh, uh, wage for everyone. And um, I think 
my my experience is that if people are given the opportunity and in, and they and the opportunity to work and do something that means something to them, they actually want to do it. They, they don't want to sit at home, you know. And I saw an example of that in New Zealand, oh, I don't know, back in the uh, late 80s or 90s or something, where one of the governments brought in a scheme where they were um, paying people who were on the dole a little bit more to actually do work in community projects. And I had a, a friend who was supervising one of those projects uh, where I lived in Brighton uh, and near Dunedin. And um, they had some pretty rough characters there. And over a period of months, those, those people changed completely so that they were actually on the job before he would get there. And they were taking ownership of the things they had been doing, you know, cleaning up areas, planting things, putting in uh, picnic tables, painting the surf club toilets, doing all sorts of jobs like that. Now, what actually happened was they they cut the funding and said, said you people have now got skills, go and get a job. But of course, the reality is that was the job. There was no other job for them to get. And one of those um, people uh, that was on the work scheme ran off the rails and actually killed somebody. Now, the supervisor did some calculations and said that the cost of the court case to put him in jail and the cost of keeping him in jail could have kept the whole damn scheme going for about six or seven years. Uh, it's, so it's a false economy thing. It's the same that we actually see with what's happening with the virus, that if better planning and preparation ahead had been done, we probably wouldn't be in the, uh, in the, in the state that we're actually in now. Uh, so I, I, I really hope that uh, something can come out of this where there is a living wage. Um, they In Australia, they changed things quite dramatically, things that people had been asking for for a long time, uh, like free childcare, was suddenly available. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's like, if you can do it now, why can't you do it at other times, you know? The fear I have is uh, that, you know, the, the 10 wealthiest people on the planet will be much wealthier out of this than while everybody else's wealth is going backwards. Um, that, that is a, that's a bit of a worry, and I don't know where we're going to go with that one. So I have a couple of questions to end with, and oops, not very much time to do them. So you, I think I've asked you these questions before. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. The collection of people doing good work, and you're in our mansion. What's your superpower? Well, I think... I think the, my superpower, uh, which I've always uh, been uh, lucky to have, is sleep. Uh, <laughs> if I go to bed, I don't worry, man, I'm out to it, you know. It, the, the, I've got a brilliant statement, I can't remember exactly how it goes, by the Dalai Lama, and it's it's kind of like, you wake up in the morning, you go, ah, shit, I didn't die. I didn't die during the night, so I'm going to do the best 
for other people as much as I can. So what I find is by um, being able to to really sleep well, uh, it means I can wake up really refreshed. If I've got making aching muscles and things like that, they tend to heal quicker when you're asleep and you're not worrying. Um, so learning how to sleep is is it's it's a difficult thing to do. I don't know if you can learn it, but uh, it's certainly a superpower. Just that time to to sleep properly um, is is a, is added on to that. Of course, is lifestyle as well. Um, keeping active, eating good food, having good people around you who are positive um, and support you. Um, that's that's fantastic. And I've got a lot of good friends. Uh, you know, I can ring them up and talk to them about ideas and things like that, and um, they give me pretty honest feedback. So what's the biggest challenge you're working on or you're looking forward to over the next couple of years? Well, what we would really like to do is scale up what we're doing with putting the plants on the buildings. Um, I think there's huge potential to do um, some really great work with these plants that the plants, are, it, it's not really rocket science, it's just understanding that the plants naturally grow in a way where you can put them on a building with a lot of other uh, technology to keep them alive. So it's it's not rocket science that way. Um, but yeah, the, things are, you know, they're slowly churning away. I just, um, I do wonder what's going to happen with some other more intensive vertical gardens because there's two problems there. One is that if they're not, if there is problems and there's lockdowns and they're not considered um, essential services, then they, they need maintenance, they may die. And the other problem is that some of the, um, some of the places that have installed these, the establishments that have installed them, uh, may not be able to fund them to keep them going. Um, Melbourne Uni, for instance, I know they've got a, they told us they've got a vertical garden there. It costs, it's not that big. It costs 40000 a year to run. The big one in Sydney, they've got a huge one in Sydney, which is um, is world famous. It costs over a million dollars a year to run. Um, so I don't know how that some of those things are going to play out. So what I'd like to do is see if we can actually work with the air plants and, um, really put them in places on buildings and between buildings. That's the other point is that we can actually suspend plants between spaces to create shade to cool things down. Uh, we've been doing some experiments with schools. Um, you probably know the shade cloths they have uh, with the woven plastic. Well, of course, it's stopping um, the UV coming in and burning the kids so they don't get skin cancer. But the unspoken thing is that they are breaking up all the time and the microfibers are falling onto the ground and the molecules uh, kids are picking up in the playground and of course they're carcinogenic. So it's 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 kind of has its own, you create a problem, fixing mm -hmm. a problem. Uh, so what we're looking to do is explore some ideas about how we could actually create nets and put put the air plants on them to create shade. And of course, they're active; they're, they're actually capturing CO two at the same time. So. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? 
Uh, look, I, I think just you just have to. Everybody in their life goes through difficult times when you know it just seems like everything's black and and there's no way out. But somehow, you know, you you just hang in there, hang in there, and it's a progressive thing. It takes a long time, but over a period of time, um, things will get better. You know, and surround yourself with people who are positive and can help you. Um, well, one of the things I did that had a big effect on my life was uh, when I was about 20 uh, and I started experimenting a lot with alcohol and things like that, I found it just was, it created problems in my life. So when I was 20, I stopped drinking and I haven't drunk ever since. And um, it's, you know, even Keith Richards has given up the bottle now, so <laughs> has one beer now and again. Um, there's too much emphasis put on some of that stuff. You want to get intoxicated, there's good oxygen out there. Keep active like Sam, keep swimming. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me. That's right, yeah, yeah. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook too. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I've been talking with Lloyd Godman, ecological artist in the bush outside Melbourne. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.